I'll do the reading here from 1 Samuel 16. So if you've got a Bible and you want to get it open. So 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 23. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint me, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had brought him in. He was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command the servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Great. Well, thank you, Matthew, for reading. It's lovely to be with you all. Um, if you haven't met, my name is Steve. I'm going to be starting our new series in the book of David, uh, the book of Samuel, looking at the life of David, a man after God's own heart. Why don't we pray 
and uh, just take a moment to be still where you are and, uh, uh, and ask God to speak. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We pray you would speak to us now through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel that we're going to spend a number of weeks in, that we might discern our hearts better and follow your heart more closely. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, who said, Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Tolstoy knew he wrote a little pamphlet about social reform and political reform, and he said that could never come about by external change. If you really want to change society, if you really want to see a revolution, if you really want change, it, he, he described it as a moral one. A regeneration of the inner man was his phrase. But the problem, Tolstoy says, is where everyone wants change, everyone is thinking of changing the world, but no one's thinking of changing themselves. In other words, we're always focused on the external problems outside, not the internal problems within. But ex changing the externals will never change the internal. Now, the problem that Tolstoy saw is this problem as a human race, and it is, it is brilliantly expressed in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People... Look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you see what the Lord says? What do we do, you and I? What's the human tendency? What's the human problem? What's the human blindness? We look at externals rather than internals, but the Lord is looking on the heart. And so in this series in the life of David, we're going to try and learn to look inside at our hearts which is always the pathway to lasting change. Now in Samuel chapter 16, verse 31, all the way to the end of the book, we get a stark contrast between Saul and David. Both were anointed kings of Israel by the prophet Samuel. Both were handsome men, good looking men. The ladies loved them. Both were impressive men externally, great military leaders. And both were used by God. But from chapter 16 onwards, one deteriorates whilst the other rises up. One is consumed with jealousy, malice, revenge, while the other is free from them all, at least in the book of 1 Samuel. Things go downhill for David in 2 Samuel, but 1 Samuel, he rises. One is peace-loving and kind, while the other one is aggressive and paranoid and out of control. One is anointed by the Spirit of God, while the other is tormented by a spirit from God. You see, both men were military men, military, they, they knew how to fight. But Saul had only ever learned one type of fight, and it was an external battle. David, even in his weakest moments and his greatest failures, had learned how to fight internally. He'd learned the fight of the heart. And that is why, even though he makes the same heinous sins as Saul does, in the end, he's known as a man after God's own heart because he knew how to fight the internal battle. So today I want to look at four things. What is the battle of the heart? Why do we so often lose the battle? How can we win it? And what are the spoils of victory? 
So what is the battle of the heart? We first meet uh, Saul in 1 Samuel 9. Now we didn't have that read and it reads this. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome as young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. He was a head and taller, he, he was a head taller than anyone else. Saul is an outwardly impressive man. To use the famous expression, he was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. Not just in height and ability, he was handsome. He was the future king of Israel, and everyone could see it with their eyes. Saul was an outwardly impressive man. But what then unravels it is his outward confidence is counteracted by an inner weakness. So if you read the story, when he's actually announced an anointed king by Samuel, he ends up, they can't find him. He's hiding in the baggage. He's afraid of the spotlight. He acts in fear, lacking patience and trust. He repeatedly makes rash vows. One of them puts his own son, Jonathan, in jeopardy. His life, the life of his son. He repeatedly makes excuses for why he hasn't obeyed God's word. He tries to justify himself. It's painful to read. But when he finally stops justifying his wrong behavior and for disobeying God, you see the problem under it all. He's a people pleaser. 1 Samuel 15, 24, this is what happened. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men. And so I gave into them. Fear of man was deep within Saul's heart. Outwardly impressive, inwardly very insecure. Can you see the battle of the heart? It's can summarize in this one question. Does my outer life match my inner life? That's the battle of the heart. Is the person I project to the world the same as the person that I really am? For Saul, there was a great disparity between his inner and his outer life. And at first, that disparity just bit him from time to time. Then it came to haunt him. And eventually that disparity destroyed him and that's what happens when there's disparity between your inner and outer life i'm speaking from experience and the experience is all too soon it's not i wish i could say it was some years ago we can hide we can seem impressive for a while but at some point if our inner and outer life don't match we will unravel the cracks the insecurities the weaknesses the ugliness eventually it rises to the surface we can no longer hide our inner life is exposed and we are devastated another term for the battle of the heart is the battle against pride that blinds us from this disparity between the inner and outer life pride stops us seeing that something different is happening on the inside than what we're projecting on the outside so Saul kept trying to justify he kept trying to have excuses you know, it's really interesting. The word used of Saul when we first meet him in 1 Samuel 9, 2, that he was taller than everyone else, is the same word used when we meet Eliab, David's older brother, when he says, do not consider his appearance or height, tall and height are the same word, is the same word used right at the beginning of the book, where, uh, where Samuel's mum, Hannah, is got this bitter rival, Penina. You know, Hannah can't have a baby, and, and Penina, her, her bitter rival, winds her up all the whole time. But eventually the Lord opens uh, Hannah's womb, and she gives birth, and, uh, and she says, do not keep talking so proudly, tallly. Don't have so much height. The Lord humbles. 
and he exalts. And it, so the same word proudly in chapter two is the same word chapter 16 of Eliab is the same word for Saul's trawlers chapter nine. And then yeah, when David is announced, when David is brought on the scene, what do we learn from this chapter? There is still the youngest, or you could translate it the Hebrew, the smallest, opposite to height. Do you see what the brilliant writer of 1 Samuel is doing? He's talking about pride. The problem with Saul, the problem with Eliab, was that, at, that their external height matched an internal pride. Outwardly, they were impressive, and inwardly, they knew it. They were haughty. They looked down on others. They believed the press that others wrote about them. They had an overinflated ego. Their competence meant they were self-reliant. They kept taking credit for the good things that happened in life because they were the ones that did it. And even and even and even the great and godly Samuel, the prophet of God, he commits the same mistake as everyone else. He too looks at the external, not the internal. Pride blinds us. No one in the story can see who the real king of Israel is. No one has eyes to see David. Not even Samuel can escape the great trap that traps every single human since the history of the human race began. We look at externals, not internals. We all do it. We're all judging people on external appearances, body image, clothes, look, wealth, beauty, fitness, your social media presence, the job you have, the house you live in, the car you drive, the wedding day that you're going to have, the school you went to, the university you do go to, how slim your waistline is, how impressive your six pack is, the list goes on. And don't try and tell me you don't do it. We all do it. No one is immune. But the real danger is pride that blinds us from seeing that we're doing it. We focus on external, not internal. And by the way, social media has only exacerbated this great problem of mankind. We both A, project and B, C, only an outwardly impressive image of people. Social media by its very nature makes us focus on externals, not internals. Social media is fueled by pride. That's why the companies are making billions of dollars because of pride in the heart of man. Do you know how this pride really manifests itself most clearly? Comparison and insecurity. As we learn about Saul, particularly in the next chapter when David defeats Goliath and the women sing that Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Saul cannot stand it. Someone else is in the spotlight. Someone else has done better. He, Saul cannot stand to be second. When David is first, he fears the men and he fears David because he feels like he's competing with them. This was C.S. Lewis's great insight on pride in his book in, Mere, in his chapter in Mere Christianity. He says the point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed that someone else is be else being the big noise. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Pride is competitive by its very nature. That's why it goes on and on. If I am a proud man, 
then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. That was Saul. That was David. That's you and me. Let me bring this down to earth. Think about Saul. Think about it. Pride means you can't rejoice when others succeed. Do you find that in your own life? Because their success shows that you haven't succeeded. Isn't it horrible when you find you have a twisted pleasure when someone else fails? And you think, why did I? Oh, it's making me feel better about myself that they failed. Pride means that when you come into the presence of someone very rich or very powerful or very beautiful or very competent, you feel incredibly intimidated. You feel inadequate because you feel poor or weak or ugly or incompetent. Pride means that when you look in the mirror, you either admire yourself or you cringe. And when you look at someone else and their physical appearance, internally you rank yourself against them. So can you see in the life of Saul and in our lives too, low self-esteem is the opposite side of the coin to pride. One minute we're pouting and showing that we're better, we're ranking higher, and the next minute we're devastated, hiding in the baggage, fear of man, we're lower. In other words, we're always drawing attention to ourselves. Someone's prettier, someone's cleverer, someone's richer, someone's more successful, someone's more able, someone's a better person, someone's a cooler parent or a better parent or they're socially savvy. And so we so easily take offense. We're so fragile. We're like an inflated balloon that's in danger of being popped. Our inflated view of ourselves is always just in danger of being popped like a balloon. And it terrifies us. We might be exposed. Our outer in, in, impressive CV may no longer cover up the internal emptiness that I feel. And so we just, we're always getting hurt. We're, we're always saying, you know, we're, we're just always offended by people. You know, people often say their feelings are hurt. Our feelings don't hurt. Our ego hurts. My sense of self, my identity. I personally feel threatened. That's what hurts. My feelings are fine. It's my ego that's in trouble. My pride has been bruised. I'm drawing attention to myself all the time. Can you see the battle of the heart? It's a disparity between the inner and the outer life. And it's a battle of pride that makes us blind to who we really are inside and, re- and, 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 and stops us seeing that we're competing with everyone in the world. So the second question is, why do you so often lose this battle? I'm sure what I've just said, you're like, yeah, I get it. I feel it. In fact, I'm feeling a bit awkward right now how much I feel it. But why can't I win it? The reason we so often lose the battle of, of the heart is that we fight pride with pride. Think about it. What's the world's answer to low self-esteem? Go and prove yourself. You're not a failure. Go and show them. Go, go and show those no-gooders that you're the good one. Go, go, go. The world's answer to low self-esteem is pride. If you go to a counsellor with low self-esteem, they'll say, don't worry what anyone else thinks of you. Just you set the standards. You set your own rules. You decide what's right and wrong. You go and show the world that you're the one. You, you, know, you know what you're doing. Don't worry what anyone else thinks. The culture around us remedies low self-esteem with high self-esteem. Prove yourself. Show everyone you can do it externally. It's a trap. It's the biggest trap It doesn't work. It never has worked because pride and low self-esteem are two sides of the same coin. We're still looking at the outer person. We're still committing the great mistake. We haven't gone inside. The real problem 
is not that we are not outwardly impressive. It's that we're inwardly empty. That's the problem. Maybe COVID-19 is revealing, revealing this more than ever. Many of the external things that we used to prop up our sense of worth have gone and it's forced us to look inside and we found emptiness. Inside each of us, every single one of us, there is, when you really get there, there is a sense of inadequacy. It goes back to Genesis chapter two and three. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were both naked and felt no shame. They were naked. They were physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually naked. And, and, and they were completely known and they felt no need to hide. They were unashamed because they were full up. There was no inadequacy. Their inner and their outer life matched perfectly. There was no pride. There was no competition. There was no comparison. There was no fear of man. Adam and Eve lived in the presence of the love of God. And that is all they needed. And they were complete. Genesis chapter 3, we rebel against God, we turn from God, we decide to live lives our own way. What happens? Three things. Did you, did you read the story, Genesis 3? Three things happened. They hide from God, they cover up with fig leaves, and they make excuses like Saul. Constant, no, he did it, she did it, he did it. No, no, it's not my problem. Do you see there's a disparity that's come about in their inner and outer life? They want to keep people at arm's length. I don't want to be known. I want to cover my nakedness. I want to make, I need to make excuses. I need to focus on externals. How can I get a fig leaf to cover up so that no one sees what's. And what we do is we try and find something other than God to build our identity on that will impress ourselves and impress other people. We, we try to rediscover our worth, our specialness in all the usual things. You've heard them before. Family, kids, career, work, sport, hobbies, money relationships pleasure good deeds moral effort christian ministry like if i have this is what's going to make me someone who's special this is going to this is going to deal with that in, in emptiness we don't look to god we look to one of his gifts no one's immune to it pastors like me can be the worst the worst last week Matthew quoted a pastor in it just haunted me how accurate it described particularly my early life in ministry but even the present battle i face the pastor said this my early success led to an obsession with keeping up his image rather than his soul. I was spending a lot of energy creating and sustaining my image. I stopped pursuing friendship. Another way to say that I stopped being known. And that was the beginning of the end. Very honest church pastor in America. Or a perfect example from modern culture. I've quoted it before is Madonna in an interview with the Vogue magazine. I mean, just is there a, more, is there, is there a person more successful than Madonna in our world? She says this. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. There is always push, that is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. I guess it never would. I admire Madonna. She is aware of the battle in the heart. She understands it. She's further than most of us. But you see, she's desperate for a verdict. She's desperate for the stamp of approval. 
It's like we're living our lives in a courtroom and we're trying to justify ourselves. And there's the prosecutor in the courtroom giving all the reasons why we're worthless and deserve to be judged and discarded. And that prosecutor's voice is so loud. And then there's the defendant in the room and the defendant is giving us all the reasons why our external CV it should, you know, means we're valuable and we should be accepted and we shouldn't be rejected. We're desperate for a verdict. We want to know that we're approved. Some days we feel like we're winning the trial. The defendant's doing better. Some days we feel like we're absolutely being destroyed destroyed in court and we're hopeless and we're inadequate as people are we winning or losing the trial in life but the emptiness seems to remain so how do you win the battle you can't fight it pride with pride how do you get out of the courtroom how do you find the stamp of approval that means forever you're okay do you see the contrast between Saul and David in chapter verses 13 and 14 so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. The difference was not external, but internal. The spirit came upon David, but the spirit departed from Saul. One was filled up with the spirit. One was emptied of the Holy Spirit. Many years later, great David's great-grandson would walk on earth and he'd be anointed king of Israel. And what would happen? As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. The Spirit of God came on Jesus the exact same moment the verdict came to him. The stamp of approval of the king of the universe that he was a beloved child and, he was, and, and in whom the father was pleased. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers today? The Apostle Paul says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words... The Holy Spirit comes when you believe in Jesus and he gives the same verdict that Jesus got at his baptism when he was anointed king of Israel. That we too are God's children, that the father in heaven, the king of the universe loves us and approves us. How, how, how can we know? How can we be certain of this approval? How, how, how can, is this the nice wishful thinking? Well, some of the sweetest words in the entire scripture in Romans chapter three that says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are courtroom justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying the trial is over. The verdict is in. It's over. The court is adjourned. We're out of the courtroom. The moment you or I believe God imputes Christ's record to you and he adopts us as his children into the family and the Holy Spirit comes along and says, I want to make sure you know that the Father in heaven loves you unconditionally and he's pleased with you as his child because you're in Jesus. And we're filled up with God's love again. When you become a Christian, you leave the courtroom. That's what it's to become a Christian. The verdict's in, and the one who stood in your place has a perfect external CV. You can try and keep filling yourself up through external performance, but the verdict and the approval you desire will never come in like Madonna testified. 
or you can accept his performance, receive the verdict and be filled up. In all the world religions, in all the worldviews, secularism and everything, only in the gospel of Jesus do you get a verdict over your life separate from your performance. Hallelujah. Only in Jesus, only in Jesus, only by the Spirit do you get a verdict over your life that is completely separate of your personal performance. The Apostle Paul later would put it like this. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We've left the courtroom. The guilty have been acquitted. And it's the role of the Holy Spirit every day as your counsellor and friend to say, you're special. You're loved. The king of the universe delights in you. Because you're in Christ, you're mine. And I give you that stamp of approval. I don't love you more because of any impressive CV or house you live in or car you drive or job. I don't love you any more for that. And I don't love you any less if all that's not very impressive in the world's eyes. I love you in Jesus. And just as Saul needed the music from David to soothe his ego and his heart. So the Holy Spirit plays the music of the gospel into our heart every day to soothe our ego and our heart and to fill us up with the love of God, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're eternally loved. What's the battle of the heart? It's the battle of disparity between the inner and the outer life and pride blinds us from that and makes everyone else an enemy. Why do we so often lose the battle? Because we fight pride with pride. We look to deal with inner emptiness through external performance, but it doesn't work. It's a trap and will only unravel at some point. How can we win the battle? Through Jesus and by the Spirit, we're filled up by God's love and given that stamp of approval that we all need. We don't win the battle. He wins it for us and we receive the spoils. So what are the spoils of victory? My last point. Let me give you some signs that you're living in the victory of Jesus. Let me show you that you've learned to pick up the spoils, that your inner fullness of Jesus, of the love of God is overflowing in your life. You know the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. You're not thinking more of yourself. You're not thinking less of yourself. You're thinking of yourself less. You're not drawing attention to yourself any longer. You're not so easily hurt all the time. You're not puffed up, but you're filled up. You just have an overflowing. You're not constantly threatened by everyone. You're not a self-hating person or a self-loving person. You're a humble, confident person. You're filled up. All of your weight loss and dietary and fitness regimes are about honoring God with your body, not feeling good about yourself or trying to impress others. You've got the right motivations for those things now. When you're criticized, you're not devastated or defensive. You're grateful and take it as an opportunity to learn because that verdict isn't the verdict over your life that matters. It's just a helpful way of growing. You don't sit around daydreaming about success and fantasizing about your dreams and nor are you beating yourself tormented by your regrets. You're out of the courtroom. You're out of the courtroom. You don't need to do that anymore. When you win first place, you can be delighted with it and happy but humble. But when you win second place, you can also be delighted that someone else has won. 
Whether it's your success or another success, you're just glad someone did it well. We love success the same way we love the sunrise. Not because we boast in it, but because it's beautiful and someone has done it well. And that is great. This, my friends, is the blessing of self-forgetfulness. This is the sweet delights of humility. These are the spoils of battle that Jesus has won for us and the Holy Spirit enables us to enjoy. The inner emptiness has been filled up by God's unconditional love and approval that stops us focusing on externals and allows us to enjoy our status as children of God. It means we cannot use social media to boast or compare, but just keep in touch with people. It means when you come into the presence of someone very wealthy, very beautiful, very competent, very something, you're neither overly intimidated by them, desperate to impress them, nor despise them, trying to find a reason to put them down. They're just a person, and you can get to know them without being intimidated or despising them. It means if you were the youngest, or you were the smallest, or you're the one that wasn't picked in the playground, or you just didn't make it, or whatever you were trying to make it, and you were always the one that seemed to get left behind, you don't have to carry that baggage in the rest of your life. Get rid of it. Be set free from it. You're loved eternally in Christ. And the Spirit says, you don't... He loves you. You don't have to carry that baggage anymore. It means if you're in a position of leadership, you're not overbearing or controlling or dominating, you can serve. It means you're not in a position of leadership or a position of leadership is, has been taken away or is taken away from you. You can gladly follow and accept the changes and seek what God has for you next. Your identity doesn't come from your role. The gospel of Jesus is the only way you get a verdict separate from your role or performance. It means when we choose leaders at Christ City Church, we don't look to impressive external CVs, but by the, we look to the anointing of the Holy Spirit shown in humility, kindness, consistency, and service in the hidden place where no one saw that service. I want to end with two things. Firstly, Let's let COVID-19, an enforced period of simplicity and slowing down, give us a chance to look at our hearts. When many of the external things that we've often used to prop up our lives are taken away, go, thank you, Lord, for this gift. I might get to start winning the battle, or I might get to pick up the spoils of the victory you've won a bit more without the busyness and the distractions of all those things I used to build my identity on. Secondly, friends, let's use this series in the book of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, the life of David, to go after the heart of God and to go after our own hearts. Let's not settle for anything less than the blessings of humility, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the joy of inner and outer integrity. The battle has been won in Christ. The Holy Spirit wants us to pick up the spoils. There's never been a better time for us to have a go at this. I pray that you'll be open and humble enough to be open, that the Spirit wants to work deeply in your life. Let's take a moment to pause, and we're going to sing a great song which reflects on this idea of the inside out. Take a moment just to reflect on how God has spoken to you, and then we'll sing.
So let me pray and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that in Jesus we get a verdict over our lives, a stamp of approval eternally separate from our performance. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we sing this song and as every day you come to us, the gospel will be so sweet in our hearts that we're filled up by the love of God, this unconditional approval and a joy would overflow and we wouldn't be threatened by people nor despise people nor feel we're competing with people nor so easily hurt. We'd know the blessings of self-forgetfulness and the sweet, the sweetness of humility. Teach us that. Teach me that. Teach us all that, Lord. And help us not to fight pride with pride. I'm feeling down, therefore I'm going to go and do something. I'm feeling down, I'm going to run to you. Help us to do that more, Lord, and help us to be a community that learns to do this. Lord, we have so far to go. I have so far to go. But please use this series to teach us wonderful lessons and pick up the spoils of the victory that your son won for us. Let me pray that in Jesus' name. Let's sing.